So, Bob, once again, we recorded a whole episode and then we got into some personal things with I, you know, someone died close to me recently. Mm -hmm. We talked about that. And then we went into some of your traumas and your current situation. You talked about how to take the leap of faith into a corrective experience Mm -hmm. regarding your, you know, disorganized attachment your traumas with your father and mm-hmm. and then we were like we should make this a patron only episode so that's what we're going to do um if you want to listen to this whole episode in which bob and i go into all those things you have to be a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com and if you're already a patron if you can become an annual patron and or an upper tier patron that would also really help us out so do that now right bob? my my favorite episodes are the ones that you and me make patron only. Yeah. Mostly because they're, they're like fun convers fun. They're meaningful. Yeah. They're, they're fun. They're not a surface. Yeah. Conversations that we have with one another. I really like those. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, to maybe one day just listen to all the, all of our patron only episodes yeah. kind of back to back, particularly maybe the last half hour and just uh, track the, progression of of our relationship oh that would be yeah that'd be cool yeah so become a patron do it now so bob emails let's answer him what do you say yes let's answer anonymous patron she says do you have any suggestions for managing verbal abuse and or sexual harassment from clients the agency i work for focuses on severe mental illness I often receive verbal abuse and, at times, sexual harassment from clients. I have primarily managed these incidents by explaining the behavior is inappropriate to the clients. If it is verbal abuse, we talk about how their feelings are valid, but there are acceptable and unacceptable ways to deal with them. I understand many of the clients I I have engaging in these behaviors are coming to me for help in avoiding them, and I have compassion towards these clients. However, I also feel like these are the parts of the job that I wish I could walk away from. Bob, what do you think? I can't imagine a mental illness that would make somebody engage in those behaviors that would be overlookable. Like, where's your boss? Where's your agency? Why aren't they standing behind you saying, look, you're welcome to come here for treatment, but you will not engage in this behavior. Go elsewhere or, you know, whatever. But um, you, you, nobody deserves to be treated in this way. And there is no illness anybody has that would make that sort of like, oh, that must be a symptom of the illness. No, absolutely not. Right. You're right. not getting paid enough. Right. Well, that was my first reaction was you can fire clients now if your agency won't allow that then that's a problem and i I might think about maybe not working there you know yeah because if it's harming you yes um that isn't you don't get paid enough for that kind of trauma really yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're like, well, it's not that bad. I just wanted to know, like, from y'all, like, what I could do. Well, and <clears throat> like what Bob is saying, uh, get support. Talk to your boss. Talk to yeah. other colleagues. What do they do? That kind of thing. And you can have rules. Like, yeah. if I were in your shoes, 
I, and someone was like that with me, my first reaction would be kind of deer in headlights because I wouldn't know uh-huh. what to do. Yeah. Um, the second thing uh, after that, I would contemplate and talk with them. I say, so remember last time how da da da. I there are certain rules that we have or I have, and uh, it involves not doing X, Y, and Z. And uh, you know, I'll give you a pass for last time because you didn't know those are my rules. But if you do that again, I'm just going to tell you, like, I'm not going to work with you. And that's just the way that it is. Yeah. And, and I, I like you and I and I, I invite you to, you know, we can talk about other ways that you can express yourself. We can talk about ways of um, noticing your distress as it comes up. We can talk about how maybe a lot of people have talked to you in this manner and it you've absorbed a lot of it. But um, I personally am just not going to do that. And you could make an argument that that's therapeutic to the client that you're drawing boundaries yes. and modeling yes. how to uh, have self-respect that that sort of thing um, particularly the sexual harassment my my goodness like no <laughs> that is not supposed to be part of the job but on the other hand imagine if every person who had issues and again as bob says there's no mental illness that says you have a compulsive harassment and abuse of other people there's there's no there's no dsm diagnosis there's no compulsive abusive disorder you know what i mean it's it's a choice that they make now are they suffering it sounds like it is it hard for them to manage their anger do they have a lot of reasons to be angry impulsively okay sure uh are they in high distress frequently maybe does it justify them being harmful to you, particularly you? I mean, you're you're there to help. Uh, I wonder if many of these folks don't really even want to talk to you, and they're forced to talk to you to get meds, which is often mm-hmm. the case. You know, they'll be in psychiatric help, and in order to get those meds, they have to talk to the therapist yeah. at least X amount of times right. per, per month. Right. And I find that to be terrible (laughs) as a job imagine all your clients are not there to talk to you i mean did you have a job like that kind of i did yeah as a therapist or pre-therapist both yeah how was that depressing yeah well the clients that that i saw that were there for the reason for for med management and you know forced to see me that was depressing. I had lots of other clients that were there. They wanted to work on stuff. They were engaging and engaged and, um, you know, they were delight. Yeah. 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 And I don't want to have a whole blanket statement. I mean, I've had some court ordered or sort of forced, yeah, forced clients who, um, were terrible because they didn't, you know, we're, we're both, my boss is telling me I have to work with them and some yeah. entity is telling them they have to work with me and right. we're both sitting in an office for an hour every freaking week right. staring at each other and I'm trying to pull teeth Man. figuratively and nothing, they don't want that to happen and I'm like, why am I here? Yeah. Having said that, there were there were the occasional client who had a situation like that that I really enjoyed. There were some domestic violence perpetrators that I um, end up, you know, they were forced by law to work with me and I, I liked working with them. There were some heroin addicts that I worked with who, or opiate a- addicts who were forced into therapy for one reason or another that I, I liked working with. Mm-hmm. There was also a guy I always, you know, do you remember more of your first 50 clients than you do 
than other periods of your career? Maybe. There's a a a group of therapy clients that I worked with in my first year or two. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a much higher percentage of those clients than I can really of any other time in my career. There's There are swaths of my, you know, every once in a while, like someone will contact me and I worked with you 20 years ago. I want to work with you again. I'm like, I do not remember them. Yeah. Now, if I saw them, I'm sure I would, it would jog my memory because when yeah. I see faces, I, you know, or especially if I heard a little bit about them. But anyway, there's this one client who was forced to work with me because he embezzled money at work. And we, uh, I remember he was like, I'm forced to be here. The judge made me come here. And I remember really enjoying working with him. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting case to try to figure out what it was about his traumas. And it might've even been an early learning experience for me about how, you know, early childhood experiences could result in something as what we would call criminal or problematic or harmful to others as embezzling money, Mm -hmm. you know, and so self-destructive too, because it was extremely likelihood that he was going to get caught, which Mm -hmm. is really true for a lot of common embezzlers. You know, if you're really high end wall street embezzler, you probably get away with it because you have all these systems in place, but the common everyday embezzler, they're just taking money from the till or they're in charge of an expense account that they keep spending on themselves, you know, and, and they just go down a, a slippery slope. Have you ever had a client like that? No, I don't think I have. Yeah. Anyway, anonymous patron, um, we feel your pain. Uh, you don't deserve to be treated that way. And <clears throat> you say, do you have any suggestions on managing uh, the clients? Well, you know, like I said, yeah. uh, draw a boundary. Right. Feel free to fire people. I would hope that you could do that. Um, you can end sessions early. Yep. You know, you could, if as at the very least, you would be able to say, look, I'm not going to terminate with you, but at any point in the session, if X, Y, or Z happens, the session's ended and you're, you have to go. I'll see you next week, but, and you can think about what you did, but I'm not going to sit here and stew in your abuse. <laughs> You know, I'm not going to be a trapped victim in a room with an abuser uh, uh, without any agency or power to to do anything about that. So and I know that can be hard. I'm guessing you've literally never been trained to do that. Sure. Because there's no class in graduate school about how to kick clients out of your (laughs) out of your office. It just isn't one of those things. And so you probably would benefit by having a mentor who was strong in this area, Mm -hmm. who cared and Mm -hmm. really wanted to work with this population, but also just had a a really good approach, a a compassionate boundaried approach. You know, there's a, there's a way to be that. And for some of these folks, depending, they might have been through a lot as kids and as teenagers and then as adults. And, to have someone that will stay in contact with them and also exhibit healthy boundaries might be the best thing that they could have. Yeah. You know, it might be that kind of ground level of therapy that they need to have to move forward to the next phase. Anonymous patron, she says, hi, Dr. Kirk and Bob, can you elaborate on your experience with what it is like for people shedding parts of their maladaptive self 
while they move towards healing. I find that sometimes I am focused on healing and exploring my internal experiences that I'm having a harder time living in the moment. I am taking myself a little too seriously. I'm wondering what your experiences are with the healing journey. Bob, what do you think? Okay, I'm going to... This is... Okay. I don't know that uh, we shed parts. Mm. I think we probably integrate with um, parts of ourself. Hopefully we look at the aspects of self that um, have suffered with compassion, uh, seeing how it makes sense. I, I was talking to a, co- a, friend of my, a friend of mine the other day, and they were saying, they said something very interesting about trauma. They said trauma is not the experience. Trauma is, let's see, how they put it? What happens inside a person when they've gone through an experience, and that's not, they said it much more eloquently than that. Um, so I don't think that we shed our parts of ourself. I think we learn to um, integrate, live with, have compassion for, accommodate um, parts of ourself. But I don't know that we're going to do much shedding. Like whatever happened to us, it it did indeed happen. And so then that gets that we have an opportunity to weave that into the fabric of our story. Yeah, as you say that, I think. If, say, someone has a lot of oversensitivity to something or a temper or something, yeah, one way to frame it is I'm getting rid of that part of myself. Another way sure. to say it is, well, what is that part doing for me and why is it there? Right. And how do I point it in the right direction that's best for me? Probably doesn't want to let's say it's temper it doesn't it's not like it wants to explode right um um what what's going on the, have you heard this i i heard this somewhere i think it's probably true or at least that anger management programs don't actually treat anger they treat whatever un, is underneath anger they help people manage their you know um explosiveness but if they're not treating fear or shame or whatever's underneath they're not going to get anywhere have you heard this um, no, but I did teach anger management and domestic violence courses. I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? Yeah. Early in my career, mm-hmm. I was, that we had a d- domestic violence department in Federal Way Youth Family Services. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And they also had a chemical dependency program. Mm-hmm. And I would, as a therapist, they asked me to work in the mandated perpetrator and victims groups as a therapist because the domestic violence person, I don't know what the qualifications were for the domestic violence. I don't think she had a master's, Mm -hmm. but whatever she, she had some sort of post-grad, you know, training. I think it was maybe, I don't know what it is now, but I I think back then it was just like a certification program of some sort, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't clinical. It was, just domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe similar to how chemical dependency mm-hmm. uh, professionals, they're not clinical. They're at least I wouldn't call them clinical. They don't know. They can't. Well, they can diagnose uh, substance use problems, but they can't diagnose like depression. It's like a, it's like a specialty. Yeah. But it's, but it's not like, um, anyway, point is, is that they didn't have a mental health person. And so, and they found that a lot of the clients needed that mm-hmm. as well. And so I was called into both the chemical dependency program. Uh, and then later on, I was actually at a chemical dependency agency and I was 
um, the therapist there. Mm -hmm. But with domestic violence folks, I was there. And so, and also they had me teach the anger anger management courses. Anyway, point is, is that anger management courses, I don't know how they're taught today so much. I I think it's similar that it's a, it's maybe similar to some of the lessons you do in DBT, which is just emotion regulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's noticing your emotion, notice knowing your triggers, having techniques on how to reduce your arousal, how to um, have a repertoire of coping skills. Whereas, and of and yes, it does. It's ten weeks typically. It's group format. It's not personal. So yeah, it wouldn't address your issues. It wouldn't address your the reason why you have an anger problem to begin with or your traumas or your abuses or something. And then domestic violence treatment was, uh, you know, for those who were deemed. So what would happen is someone would be charged with a crime of assaulting their spouse. They would be mandated to come to us to be evaluated. And the evaluator would determine if they were, if they just had an anger management problem, which just means they have a general emotional regulation problem or if they needed domestic violence treatment, which had to do with entitlement, ideas of relationships, misogyny often, patterns of being overly reactive to partners. You know, the the distinction often between the anger management folks and the domestic violence folks was the domestic violence folks were not typically triggered outside of their romantic relationship. They could manage themselves, whereas... The anger management folks were triggered by anyone. They were triggered while they were driving down the road. They yeah. were triggered by their boss. They were triggered by um, the news or something, and maybe their spouse as well, their brother, their friend. You know, they were a hothead yeah. frequently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so theirs was an emotion problem, a you know, emotion awareness and, and regulation problem, whereas the domestic violence people have all sorts of weird ideas about what relationships are supposed, are supposed to look like what's ethical in a um in a romantic relationship when mm-hmm. you know we all have that line where our spouse is is upsetting us and we will maybe interrupt them or we might get a little we might raise our voice or something or we might slam the door and walk out of the room you know all of us have this this line where we say this is okay and something beyond this is is not okay mm-hmm. whereas for people with domestic violence their threshold of what is not okay is extremely high or low whatever the difference whatever allows a lot of behavior you know to pass through their filter they're just like yep it's okay to it, you know like none of us all of us have done wrong things at in the heat of the moment with our spouse you know we've maybe called someone a name or we have slammed a door or um i don't know went outside and threw a chair at the fence or something you know or we've sent a nasty text like we've all done things that we would look back and say like well that's not okay i you know that's wrong and you would apologize for it but in the moment, it felt right. In the moment, it was like, 
yes, this is this is even this is me restraining myself. You don't even want to know what I want to do to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And <clears throat> so we all have that that gauge where it's like, okay, in the moment I thought it was okay, but later I was like, well, I mean, geez, that was probably yeah. crossing the line. But in the moment, we still won't cross certain lines, right? Well, the domestic violence people, their zone of, well, I probably shouldn't have done that, which I should probably apologize for. But in the moment, they still thought it was okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? They still kind of regret it later on. But there's, but in the moment, they're like, yeah. Whereas for you and me, Bob, since we're not, you know, domestically violent, intimate partner violence um, oriented, we, in the moment, there are lines that we just, we won't cross at all because it's like, um, we still will regret, you know what I'm saying? You know, there's all, there's a, everyone has that zone. Yeah. Domestic violence folks just have a zone that's way further down the line. And so they have to learn. That's one, that's one of the, like the 10 things they have to learn that is just not okay. Yeah. They also have to learn how to manage their attachments, really, you know, how to, which they didn't often focus on, but I started to focus on. Right on. Um, anyway. The anonymous patron is asking this question, Bob, which is, I'm so focused on healing and exploring my internal experiences in therapy, I think, that I'm having a hard time living in the moment. Do you know what she means by that? I wonder what she means by that. Like, what is happening in the moment? Maybe there's just a sort of a continuous preoccupation with either where I've been or filtering all my current experience through the lens of I'm in therapy now. Right. I, I guess there's been times when I've sort of felt that way. I remember early in graduate school, just thinking therapy, therapy, therapy kind of got, you know, a bit tedious. Um, um, you know, uh, a, a person needs a break from it. Like I would encourage um, whoever wrote in to take a break from these things like a purposeful, mindful break, like right now I'm not going to think about, you know, I'm going to have a glass of wine and hang out with my friend or um, go, you know, go to a ball game or something or whatever it is people like to do for um, uh, distraction or, you know, soothing. Because, you know, I I have a vulnerability. I can have a vulnerability to depression and fall into um, that kind of, hyper focus and I've had three people in my life who are really instrumental in pulling me out of it. One is my brother who I lived with for a couple of years when I first moved here to Seattle. And, um, he said to me, he wrote me this thing, Horace Walpole, like, I don't know who that is, but that's a quote. He said, um, Life is a tragedy to those that feel and a comedy to those that think. My brother's a big thinker. Say that again. Life is a tragedy to them that feel and a comedy to them that think. So he's a he's a comedy <laughs> kind of guy. He's a thinker kind of guy. Anyways, um, he was really instrumental in pulling me out um, and, and helping me think about things just beyond, you know, my troubles in life or whatever. And then my friend Keith, uh, similar, and you. Oh. Yeah. Um, really good at helping me not be so damn serious. Um, so I'm blessed that way that I have people in my world that um, I can play with. Yeah, absolutely. 
and makes sense. We evolved as social creatures and yeah. dependent creatures. Right. And when, and I'm the same way that when I'm struggling emotionally, it's always in isolation. And when I yeah. can talk with you, for example, um, it just always feels better. Yeah. You know, I don't even know what you do exactly. You know, you listen and you're compassionate and funny. Um, so that, is that what helps or is it just like feeling like you're not alone? Right. You know, I often think about the moment of, of dying, you know, I, I think about death a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I, I guess when I feel it, it's a tragedy. And when I think, Think of, I don't know if I, I don't know. If I'm not sure sense. what I think about my brother's <clears throat> quote, yeah. but, <laughs> but I will say that there is a definite tragedy V comedy aspect to death that on, <laughs> on, on one hand, I'm That's funny. It is very tragic and, mm. and it can be mind numbingly, uh, mind blowing yeah. <laughs> to think that those around me, you know, and yeah. Did I tell you that I told you that uh you know my old friend had died i I told you that did I tell you that no so um is the I'm, friend I'm thinking of uh i didn't I didn't tell you that she died uh, I'm, so I'm gonna tell you her name off air and then we'll come back yeah so i I told you that she had died right. I remember now you just right? thought maybe it was someone else I did I was thinking of somebody else and right. <laughs> okay yeah so she died and it's mind blowing because she's our age. She yeah. was our age. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while I'm on the topic, I talked about this in another podcast when I was mm-hmm. talking about grief and loss, but I was thinking about it this morning, her, her dying mm-hmm. that, and she would want this for people to have some kind of lesson around her life. I don't know exactly where she was at in the later years, but I, I knew her much better years ago and knew that she suffered a lot of abuse and trauma growing up and suffered from a lot of PTSD, complex mm. PTSD, mm-hmm. massive amounts of anxiety, mm. depression, suicidality, and would, uh, she really liked her routines mm-hmm. And she also drank a lot, mm. drank as a routine and would drink a lot during the routine and would also take a lot of jobs that were almost like self-harm in a sense, a lot of, a lot of martyrdom, you know what I mean? Wow. And she was a really great person at everyone that met her, loved her and thought she was funny and interesting and very Seattle, very, mm-hmm. you know, very... Um, alternative would be the word that I grew up with. She was an, an artist. She made alt comic books before that was a thing. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. She was friends with, um, is it Peter bag? Uh, Peter bag comic. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Peter bag. He's, uh, he, he makes hate, which is the, the comic book hate. He, and he, he was, um, he's a really famous, he's, he's like, you have R crumb and then you have like Peter bag, who wow. is, you know what I mean? Yeah. And 
she was friends and she he even made a uh, comic they they made a comic together like he oh. she wrote it and he he illustrated it anyway right, right. um but the thing that i think she would want the world to know is that trauma sucks and it can affect us and i think it ate away at her mm-hmm. and caused not only her trauma to manifest in her you know stomach and intestines because she ulti- i think she ultimately died from ulcers and bleeding in her intestines mm. and, and stomach mm. and i don't know I, I, this is all just me uh piecing together because she was in and out of the hospital towards the last number of months and she would post on Facebook a lot about her experience. Yeah. And at the time I just thought, well, you know, she's, she's just going through something and it sounds like it's pain. And she was a lot of pain, physical pain, Mm -hmm. but I didn't think she'd die. Right. You just don't think now 52, you just don't think. Right. Yeah. But I think that her, not only did her trauma cause, cause you know, stress can cause, those kinds of problems, mm-hmm. but also the drinking to mask or, you know, and she would talk about that. She would write comic books about how the drinking was just a numbing agent. Sure. It, and, and marijuana, it, it would just numb her out because every day, every minute she was struggling mm. and she only felt okay when she was numb. And when she was numb, she wasn't happy. And she could be happy. She was capable of, of sure. great of great joy and, mm-hmm. and happiness and laughter. But but I think it was, you know, permeated or punctuated or foundationed with sadness and mm-hmm. distress and anxiety mm-hmm. and self doubt and anger. And so I think the trauma I think she would like to tell people that they deserve to get care for their trauma. They deserve to have their safe place. She, you know, she was very into her routines and her safe routines and her safe home. You know, she mm-hmm. had a, she lived in the same place since I met her 25 years ago or something, you know, the same crappy, you know, 90s mid, you know, when we well, you know when you're in your early 20s, you you'll you'll rent some pretty bad places you know and 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 she i think lived in that same place this entire time because it was a safe place and it was and it totally fit her you know she Mm -hmm. had her she was a chef she had her you know professional chef and so she had her kitchen all kind of but i think she would want to tell people that it's okay to have your safe routine you deserve to have that it's okay to have several um rescued animals (laughs) to uh have as your uh, metaphorical children or literal children. I said, or I don't know. Children. I, she had a lot of little animals, cats and dogs that were very much of the misfit sort. And she took care of them and loved them oh, a, right a great deal. Yeah. I think she would say that it's okay to do what you got to do to get through the day. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be, um, confused. 
and friendship and family and recovery and strength are things that you deserve as well. And it's just an example of the tragedy of trauma that the abuse that she, this tremendous abuse she went through lingered with her throughout her adult life and gave her the anxiety that need that not only resulted in the ulcer potentially resulted in the ulcers, but also resulted in her needing to drink a lot, which contributed to the ulcers and then killed her at a young age and gave her so much pain at the end. Um, Do you think if you could ask her, what would she say about um, having lived? Would she say it were worth it? You know, I don't know Mm -hmm. because it was a struggle for her and she wasn't the sort that would sugarcoat things. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So, and I just, you know, it's so Seattle nineties to me, you know, she was such a, sure. Like an icon to you. What? Like an icon. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a real Seattleite, if that makes sense. Oh, well that's, you know, I moved here in 92. I think that's the thing I, I was tangential to. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who hated anything popular was aggressively democratic, you know, Democrat Mm -hmm. with all the buttons. Mm -hmm. Like before that was a thing Mm -hmm. or before it was a thing like it is now. Um, Alterno, lots of layers, fanny pack, because she, you know, she always had a, before it was ironic, she always had a fanny pack. (laughs) Like back when it was actually really nerdy to have a fanny pack, before the hipsters got the fanny pack, Uh she had a fanny, because it's like, look, you're in Seattle, you're on the bus, right? you you gotta be practical. Um, Not that this matters, but she never wore makeup, she never... You know, she had very curly blonde hair. She never, that. she never, um, styled her hair, mm-hmm. you know, um, take me as I am kind of, yeah. Um, yeah. lots of sweatshirts and hoodies uh-huh. and, um, comfortable shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know if, I don't know what she would say about if it was worth it or, mm-hmm. or, if she could go back, would she do it all over again? I, I'm sure there were things about her life, but I, I don't know if, yeah. if you know, if she is in the next life. I, I have to imagine she's much happier now. Oh, well, that's something. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, I imagine she's like, yeah, I don't want to go back to that Earth mm-hmm. place. That that was pretty miserable, mm-hmm. and. uh so, so, you know, in, in that respect, it's like a bit of a happy ending, I suppose. But on the other hand, it's, you know, it's like it's tragedy, you know, to begin with the the privilege I feel for not having gone through what she went through and frankly, what you went through. Mm. Um, You know, I don't know. Any thoughts on that, generally speaking? Yeah, generally speaking. Um, and to the person who wrote in, even though life is difficult, I I believe mine is worth it. And I'm glad to have lived this far. Intend to make the most of the time I have before me. Um, 
so I feel sad that you're suffering, that you're in pain, and I hope you'll hang in because I believe you can make a life worth living. If it, uh, That's a bit presumptuous on my part because you didn't say you didn't have a life worth living. You said you were preoccupied by a lot of painful bits. Yeah. Anyways, I hope that you do or continue to. Yeah. Let's take a break. Get back. More emails. What do you say, Bob? Yes. All right. We're back from the break. Another email. Anonymous upper tier patron. He says, Kirk and Bob, what can someone with disorganized attachment and an avoidant partner do to give more attention to the caring parts of the relationship? I would like to reorient myself away from immediately assuming and reacting to rejection. I'm a man who has been seeing someone since the beginning of the summer, and she's a total dreamboat. <laughs> in each of our own ways, we're in uncharted territory as far as vulnerability and intimacy. Mm-hmm. I've been working through my shame and effectiveness schema in therapy for six months, but I also want the corrective experience of sincerely accepting someone's love. I'd like to focus on the sweet things and pay attention to her many wonderful qualities because she deserves that in a partner. I'm afraid of missing out on another romantic relationship because of my fear of accepting love. Thank you, Bob and Kirk, for all that you do. Listening to the podcast has changed my life. Oh. Bob, uh, so what he's asking is, yeah. um, how what, what can someone with disorganized attachment with an avoidant partner do? to give more attention to the caring parts, you know, accepting the love. I want to have the corrective experiences. What, what can he do? Well, this is a good one to talk about. Um, so I'm kind of curious how this is going to come out. Cause I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, it is scary to be vulnerable. That's just true for everybody. It's always scary to be vulnerable. My couple therapy teacher, Lori Brubaker, she used to say, Bob, being vulnerable is like jumping off a cliff. And I've been thinking about that one a lot the last couple of weeks. And I've been thinking about what would it feel like to actually stand on a cliff edge and jump. And the thing that occurs to me is it would feel exactly the same inside me as it would to take a vulnerable risk with my partner, in my case, Colleen. So I believe the same parts of our body and our physiology um, activate when we think about jumping off a cliff as when we think about the metaphoric jumping off a cliff and being vulnerable with partner. So it's literally that scary to you. Yes. To do what, for example? Um, to, let's see. Uh, hold on. There was one from yesterday. Hold on. Hold on. Um, 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 it was, it was, it was something. something. Oh, Oh, I'm embarrassed. Okay, but I'm going to say it, right? <laughs> I um, somehow I get on these little kicks. Like I bought a wallet about, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I really like my wallet. And I get on these kicks where I get fascinated by that stuff. And I sort of re- research it a bit and probably a little bit too much. Well, I got lately got a kick on, on uh, pens, you know, like you write with. And so I found this pen I wanted to try out. And um, I ordered it off of Amazon. Amazon is amazing. Um, I'm sure Amazon's terrible in some ways, but nonetheless, the thing showed up at my house like three days later and, um, I didn't actually like it. And can I recommend a pen? Yes. Oh yeah. So the precise, the pilot precise V5 RT. I will, I will borrow that before I leave and scribble on something. Here, just I'll, to I'll, get a... I, 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 I'm so proud that I found this pen that I, oh. and I've been using it for years here. Try it out. 
Good catch. Thank you. Oh, oh, I see what you like, but this is a fine point. I don't like it. I don't like fine point, but I think I would like this in a medium. The quick brown fox. Yeah, so this this pen is... You, you don't have to do much to get it to write. That's really cool. Yeah, it, it almost... I don't even know if it has a ball point at the end. You know what I mean? I think it just sort of bleeds out of a hole. <laughs> um, but it doesn't goop out. You know what I mean? No. Like it's the Pilot Precise V5RT. Nice. Wow, look um, at that. It is like the perfect pen, in my opinion. And finding... Because... With ballpoint, sometimes you got to really press. Oh, you do. That's what I'm trying to get away from. And, and and with the ones that have the without the ballpoint, or the ones that seem with the ink that just sort of bleeds out. You know the, what I mean? I think it's like a gel pen. Sometimes those pens, it comes out too much. And yeah, it's, yeah, it yeah. Gloops. It's too much. It's goopy. but this one's like right is, in the sweet I, zone. No, no. This is. I get it. I get your. I get what you like about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tossing it back. So, oh, bad catch. Here's the, um, so I bought this pen and it came and I didn't tell Colleen about it and then I didn't like it. So I bought a different pen and that came and, uh, they were not cheap and, um, I was playing with that. How last, much? I'm curious. The first one was 55 bucks. The second one what? was 40. What? For one pen? Oh yeah. But you just, you refill the cartridge. You don't actually, you but don't. But Jiminy crickets. Yeah. Yeah. You so, bought it sight unseen. You hadn't tested it out. Well, Fifty five bucks. That's what's great about Amazon is you just return it. And, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So I did. I actually took them back on my way over here because I didn't like either of them, right? And they came. The one came yesterday, last evening, right around dinner time. I went out and around. It was the package was laying there, and I brought it in. And Colleen's in the living room, and she's got a fire going, and the whole thing. And I didn't tell her about it. And then I was like, okay, I got to make dinner, and I made a really lovely pork chop and. She made me zucchini. It was delicious. And some rice. And after dinner, after I cleaned up, I went into my office and was playing with both pens and trying to figure out, you know, is there some... I didn't like either one of them. I didn't tell her any of this. And so here's the thing. This is the the thing was, does it feel the same? And yeah, like to actually tell her, which now I will. I'll tell her this afternoon when I see her. To tell her about the pen... My first instinct is to not say anything because it is conspicuous consumption. It is feels vulnerable to me to um, be criticized. And um, the idea that I could be open and tell her is foreign to me. It's not what I'm used to. I don't understand. What, what vulnerability are you revealing? That I want something. Wow. Yeah. So to tell her, so what's the parent, you know that she's not going to be terrible, but what's the paranoia? What's the, what's the worry that you tell her this and what would she do that would, that would, you know, hurt you? She'd say, Bob, we don't spend $55 on a pen. The way I just did. It's different with you. Um, (laughs) um, I didn't marry you. (laughs) Anyways. um, Meaning, well, I'm guessing it's not just her having a suggestion. There's a history there between you and her around, you know, as all couples, really. Yeah, there is. um, I think that that's, you know, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
you tell her and she gives kind of a face like, yeah, what are you doing? And she's not like devastated, but, but there's a, there's a very quick flash of what did he do? Yeah. And he's wasting money and he's also kind of wasting time. And why is he drilling down this far on a fricking pen? And why is he, I kind of feel like I don't want to be with him anymore because he's so, um, I don't know, irresponsible with things or something or yeah. ridiculous, maybe a ridiculousness. Like he's ridiculous. That one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not just about pens, but about everything. Right. And he wants what he wants is ridiculous. And, you know, like, Oh, I geez, see. Louise. Like what? so self-indulgent. That ridiculous oh, self-indulgent that's a big one for me <laughs> even though it's you just buying a like i said i under, i don't know how much that pen costs i don't think it was 55 dollars because no. that's ridiculous bob just joking <laughs> um but uh you know i'm guessing it wasn't cheap but to, but to find you know if it took 55 bucks to find a good pen with some you know backup cartridges that could literally last you past your death yeah um then uh, you know, it's yeah, absolutely well, worth it. Who, who cares, right? I mean, so what? Well, yeah, particularly because if it's useful, you know, it's not like you're buying something that isn't useful. Like you're not buying a, you know, a Mickey Mantle uh, baseball card that's just going to sit on, you know, in, in your office. You're, you're buying something that is that has use to it. It's like a tool, you know. Well, anyway, but but that's the worry that you have is is that if you tell her any of this stuff, she's going to think you're ridiculous and frivolous and, and that's hard for you. And so that's leaping off the, the cliff for you. Cause yeah. it's not just that she thinks you're ridiculous. It's that she doesn't want to be with you anymore. Well, yeah. Like it's a rejection. She might not like leave me over it, but it's a rejection like this black mark on my soul or something. Right. A, t- a tick mark in the column of, of I'm going to leave him. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. No, he's a great guy. He did that thing with the pen. Yeah. That was weird. Yeah. So um, um, anyway, so I didn't I didn't tell her and I recognized that I wasn't telling her. And believe it or not, person who wrote in, this is relevant to um, your email. Like we're getting there. Anyways, um so, so I didn't tell her and I thought about telling her and I th- I recognized that I could tell her, but I didn't want to risk the thing. And the non-risk is like a habit with me. And, um, you know, you guys, we've, we around here, we've talked about my attachment style as being disorganized. That's a habit for me is to not let anybody see me, uh, do my best to hide. I don't think I'm very good at it, but nonetheless, one tries and, um, to tell her, I can, even now, as I imagine telling her, I can feel my body fill with fear. Oh, right? that's heartbreaking, Bob. To to not be able to tell such a mundane thing, you yeah. know, uh, that the trauma of rejection for you is so widely dispersed amongst your worries and behaviors, you know, that you can't tell her... Even if she did think you were ridiculous, you know, she, but she probably wouldn't, right? I don't know what she'd think. She might actually, but the thing is, is 
if she thought that were ridiculous, would she think I were ridiculous? And that she wants to leave you. Yeah, or that she would just like look at me funny. You know, it's like everybody has quirks. Yeah, my husband, he likes pens or something. Yeah. Right? But he's a great guy, right? I, that's a great guy. I'm glad I spent my life with him. And, you know, he's got a quirk. He likes pens and he doesn't yeah. like washing his car. So that's Bob. Yeah. It's right? literally like three seconds of a, th- or maybe even less of like, huh, he, he's got a thing about pens. Yeah. I can't relate. Yeah. I kind of think that that's a little ridiculous. Yeah. You know? Right. Moving on with my life. Moving I, I, d- I don't care. It doesn't register. Right. Yeah. He's my favorite guy to have happy hour with. That sort of thing. Right. Right. So, um, so I can feel my body fill with fear at the notion of telling her. And by the way, when I tell her this afternoon, it will, it will have, it will do that. It will do that. So, so there's that. So you're saying you want to have, you want to take advantage of the possibility that this dream boat that you're with is someone and you want to have vulnerable experience. So the first thing is this, Colleen, I'm afraid to tell you something. Um, it feels really vulnerable for me to tell you, and it just scares me. My teacher said to me, Bob, start with fear. Start with fear. Tell the fear. Tell the fear. Identify, Identify in your heart it. the fear and yep. tell the fear. Yeah. And then, so, and then. Partner, Why would you do that? Because I think that it's because partner needs to know what they're actually hearing. Yeah. And they won't. If they say, you know, I wanted to spend some money on a pen here, and here it is. They won't understand what the what that means. Yeah. So tell and it could come across without you saying the fear as defensive, defensive. or accusatory. Right. Like I'm telling you this and I know you're going to get all upset at me because yeah. you're ridic- you're the ridiculous right, one right, about right. me being ridiculous. Right. Which, which is, is what, insulting and triggering to them. That'd be that defense you have against we have against being afraid. So um to tell the fear and then how does partner respond? Most of the time, a person that loves us, unless they're activated by their own whatevers, is going to respond with care. They're going to respond with, oh, I see. Yeah, right. This is scary for you, right? And when I'm doing couple therapy, I think that this is the moment of, this is this is the moment that's really going to be corrective. If partner responds with, I get that you're standing on the edge of a cliff and you're going to jump. And if you jump, I will catch you. If partner responds with that kind of openness, you've got a shot at a corrective experience, in which case that's when I say, I like this pen and talk about whatever it is about the pen that, you know, drew me to it or whatever I find meaningful about this whole thing or, or even just, you know, the little quirkiness of, you know, I spent a week looking for a wallet. And I feel like I deserve to indulge myself. Oh, you're juicy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That, that's the core right. of it. I want to, ind- right, right. I want to indulge something in me, right? And I feel like I deserve to indulge myself. Oh, now hold on a and sec. And even impervious to you thinking that I don't, regardless of what you think, I felt like I deserve to indulge my pen thing. Well, now that's got a hint of defensiveness to it. Then, well, it's I. I don't want it to come across that way. It's more of of self love you're talking about declaring something not to myself yeah. you know at the very least yes that yes the declaration that that's what i want to do and that i feel good about myself regardless of what anyone thinks about it right okay so you, you and me you're right up against the edge of my um um insight about my um um rub yeah the rub this is where the rub is for me yeah it, though I agree with you, um, 
Because, but, 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 person who wrote in, you can't say such things. Well, with, you can't agree with that statement yet. I cannot. I deserve to self indulge. I do, I cannot agree with that. That's the limitations of me. Beyond so the limitations, I it's beyond my limitations at this point. I just want, please, Colleen, you to be to note and understand and take care of my fear that you think I'm ridiculous for being self-indulgent. That, yeah, that, right. Because yeah. what you're talking about then has nothing to do with pens, which, of course, none of this fear has anything to do with pens. It has everything to do with the meaning of the thing. It's never the thing. It's always the meaning we make of the thing. That's where it is. So when she is responding to me with care, love, understanding, um, tenderness, even if she doesn't think that that's a um, practical thing to do, that she recognizes that the, the meaning of the thing has nothing to do with practicality for me. Yeah, the overall gestalt is my dear husband, whom I like to spend happy hour with, needs me now to care for him independent of what I think about his pen thing. Yeah. And even if I think his pen thing is a little ridiculous, that is like nothing compared to what he really needs from me right now, which is yes. at the very least just to to be okay with him. Yeah. And at best even just say, Look, I you know, I want you to yeah. self indulge in this right. way. Which is probably what she will say. Can one percent of you, Bob, believe the statement that you deserve to self indulge about pens in the way that you have? One percent. I'll give you two. Okay. Yeah. Work in progress. <laughs> Do you believe that I deserve to self-indulge about pens? Oh, absolutely. You Do you like believe pens? that you deserve to self-indulge about pens? On an intellectual cognitive level, you and I are made of the same stardust, and therefore, if it's true for you, it's true for me. That is a fact. <laughs> yeah. And um, it breaks my heart, Bob, that only 2% of you can believe. I understand it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I get it, but I... It's, well, here's here's the thing. It's Kurt. such a tragedy that one you consider it self indulgent, which it's not. It's finding something that works for you, and two that you you don't think it's okay. Like it's you don't for you. You know, like you intellectually know it's okay for others, but it's like, well, I don't deserve. What is it? Is I don't deserve it, or? Danger is around the corner if I'm caught self-indulging. That. Yeah. Danger's around the corner if I'm caught. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Because your dad would let you have it. Oh. Like, what would he do? Mostly humiliate me. For, like, what kind of stuff? You're, what, you're five, you're ten? Um, when I was, let's see, fourth grade. How old are we at fourth grade? We're ten. Yeah. I I I had to do a project for school and I had to make a, you remember you, people used to make those volcanoes out of newspaper uh -huh. paper mache yeah right so I made one of those and I had to paint it and he had a airbrush thing a little sort of home airbrush thing um and I used it and I don't know what happened to the spring that's in the trigger but the spring in the trigger just it, I lost it somehow it fell out of the thing or I don't know what I did but it lost it and I couldn't find it and I remember standing in the basement for 10 minutes while he lectured me about how the spring itself is irrelevant because it's just a spring, but that he had to take time out of 
his day to write a letter, because this is in the 70s. He had to write a letter to the company and put a stamp on the letter and put it in the mail, and it had to be sent through the postal office. And then it had to be received by whoever works at the air spray gun factory, and they had to read the letter, find a spring in their inventory, and package it, and address an envelope and put a stamp on it and send it back. And the emotional message is because you're a giant screw-up. Because you're a giant screw-up. Because you self-indulged by, you selfishly used this tool and for you, your own means because and, you're so selfish. And you broke it. And you broke it because you're frivolous and ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's just one moment with my... And I reject you. As your father. Oh, he didn't have to say the words to feel it. Yeah. I'll never forget it. And I'm going to catalog. I'm going to catalog this, this moment yeah. as a, a permanent mark on your, on your record. Right. Right. This is going to have lasting. Right. I'm, I certainly cataloged it. You know, it's funny. I was 10 years old. I can still see the room, the orange carpet on the floor. It was like orange AstroTurf, but it was orange in our basement. And the yellow shelves and then the blue shelves, they were like almost like a royal blue and a really like a canary yellow. Wow, and he's cool. standing there and he's tall. And my dad was 5'10". I'm 6'1". Yeah. So it's not like... <laughs> but I still see him As from a 10-year-old point of view, still looking up at him, still see the contempt and all the yummies. So, so yeah, so so... Probably it's possible that um person that wrote in can relate to this sort of thing. Good chance of it, at least some their own version of it. And so if there was somebody that's avoidant, it's possible that being open and putting yourself in a position to be vulnerable may invite that person to catch you or might trigger something in them. That's why I think you got to start with the fear and be pretty plain because if they're not in a place to catch you, then it does not make sense to jump, right? So nobody's going to be there all the time. If they adore us, they're probably going to be there enough of the time, which is probably going to be still be most of the time. But if they're having a bad day or, you know, they have, in my case, like say money stress, say there were money stress, then, you know, Colleen's response to me might be different than, you know, if there wasn't money stress or whatever, if she wasn't worried about something or had a bad day at work or whatever. So you start with the fear because you want to, in some ways, make sure that the other person, you want to make sure that the other person is available and that they actually know what's being asked of them. So Kirk's doing a great job here of helping me ascertain what is the meaning of the thing because it isn't about pens. It's about, do I deserve to self-indulge? which I don't even like saying, quite frankly. <laughs> um, and will I be looked at funny or will I be looked at as, you know, annoying little turd yeah. who, you know, loses springs out of air guns or whatever. So if you want a corrective experience, there's no getting out of it. You're going to be scared and your partner has to be available and then you get to jump. And in the jumping is where the corrective experience ultimately is. Though there is something to be said that's in the direction of correction or partial correction, just by being able to tell partner how scared you are mm -hmm. to be open with them. I mean, it's a leap, too. It's a leap. It is. And self-indulgent, I yeah. guess. Right, right. But the, 
whatever it is that you do in your attachment insecurity, you're saying your partner's avoidant, you probably have elements of avoidance or elements of preoccupation or a little bit of both, or, or maybe none. Maybe you just don't do nothing. You sort of freeze or something. That's probably what most of us disorganized people do. We do sort of don't have anything that we do. That's the moment. And that can be a lot because your nervous system is twanged and, you know, like you're in fight or flight, but you're probably more like in freeze. Um, oh, I wonder if that'd be a way to describe disorganized people is they don't do fight, they don't do flight, they do freeze. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you see it in the children. That's why we called it disorganized or fearful. Right. Because the child, when the parent came back into the room, would freeze. Was That was one of the things the kid would do. But they would also kind of like disorganized. They didn't know what to do. They, they wanted to, to run to their parent because right. they felt alone and scared in, right. this strange wor- in this strange room with a stranger. Right. But the parent was more scary than the stranger. <laughs> yeah. So they wanted to run to the parent, but they were terrified of the parent. And right. so, yeah, they would freeze. They would freeze. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. So there's no getting out of it's provocative. That's true. That's a, that's a 25 cent word for you're going to be really scared when you do it right. When you do it right. If you're not, you're probably not really dipping a toe in the water. You're probably not really standing on a cliff edge yeah. and there's no getting out of that. So you've got a shot with your dream boat if you take it. Bob, you are one of the most conscientious, careful, non-self-indulgent, non-selfish, helpful, caring, thoughtful, conscientious people I know. Uh, People... Uh, you know, springs fall out of things sometimes and they go bouncing God knows where and fuck your dad for uh, making you feel bad. You know, it's one thing to be like, where is it? And you're like, I don't know. And you're like, and your dad's like, oh, that's, that's going to suck. Well, you're going to have to write the letter, pal. Right. Um, or, I want you to look around for it because, you know, I kind of need that thing. Yeah, a little bit. But son, I love you and, you know, people make mistakes. I mean, because I I think everyone kind of grows up, including me, with a little bit of that trauma. And I've made it a mission of mine with people around me when they make mistakes, when I remember to give this clear message of it's okay. Everyone makes mistakes because everyone does make mistakes. Yeah. That's what Grover sang in the seventies. Everyone makes mistakes. So yes, they do big ones, small ones, matter of fact, all ones, everyone makes mistakes. So yes, they do. Was that, was that Grover <laughs> or Big Bird? Anyway, you know, I was, it's like, why did they have to have that? <laughs> A song in Sesame Street in the seventies. Why do we have this thing like you know, no use crying over spilt spilt milk? It just happens. It's okay. Like let it go. You know, make mistakes. Pe- people spill milk sometimes, so it's all right. You know, and you know, like Stacy, what did she do the other day? <laughs> and I was so surprised actually because I didn't know she had this issue. I mean, after all these years, we'll make this a patron only episode. <laughs> um. What did she do? And she's like, I didn't want to tell you because I, I knew you were going to, uh, 
uh, oh, she, so, oh, this is a pet peeve of mine. The cars now, at least the ones that we have, the Hondas that we have, have this auto light sensor thing where you just turn on the auto thing. Yeah. And you never have to turn your lights on and off. Right, right. It just automatically yep. detects. Those are cool. And the idiotic thing is that when you take it into the the shop or the lube, they turn it off. Oh. And so you drive out of the shop and they don't tell you, by the way, I turned off, I've turned it from auto to off. Right. I think because when it's in the garage, they don't want the lights to be on or they're trying to save the the battery or something. I don't, I don't understand. And so it, um, you'll be driving around at night after and your lights would be off. And Seattle is so, there's yeah. so many street lights. You, right. you can't tell. You that can't tell. There's no way to tell. No. Nope. Because you don't need your lights really. And you'll be driving around for days sometimes um, without your lights on. And then all of a sudden someone will flash me or something and I'll be like, what? And I'll look down and my lights are off. And I'm like, oh my God, the past 10 days I've been driving at night without my headlights on. Right. Because some idiot at the Jiffy Lube turned it off and didn't turn it back on again. And I'm just thinking, and so it got to the point, no joke, I taped it. <laughs> I put it on auto and I taped it down oh, awesome. so that they couldn't turn it off. Uh-huh. Also, um, valet drivers will turn it off too. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'm just like, how come they don't understand that when we tr- we buy the car or lease the car, we turn it on auto, we never touch it again. So when you turn it off, we don't think to turn it on again. You're thinking. Yeah, you're basically pranking us. Anyway. Ah, yeah. So uh, Stacy had a, a modeling gig, actually, um, in the sticks somewhere where they don't have um, streetlights. And she had taken her car in recently, I guess. And um, she was driving for like an hour in the in the dark sticks, you know, the country without headlights on. <laughs> and really? she's like, wow, it is dark in the country, you know? And then uh, she realized, oh my God, you know, I've, I've been driving without my lights on this whole time. And then um, we were, I don't know what we were talking about. We were kind of on that subject I think maybe I was actually driving because I took my car in and they turned it off and, and I was, oh man, she's like, yeah, I, I didn't want to tell you because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be ashamed for it or something. I did not shamed, but she said, I didn't want you to react to it. Mm-hmm. And I took offense to that because I pride myself on when people make mistakes. I always, I mean, I might be like, whoa, what? But I always try to say, oh, well, I would have done that too, or, you know, it's natural or I'll blame the Jiffy Lube guy. You know what I mean? I'm not going to, um, but it made me kind of, do I shame people for making mistakes? I I don't think I do. No, just for buying $55 pens. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I would like to think that I don't honestly. And, um, but maybe I do anyway. Point is, is that she didn't want to tell me and she didn't tell me for a long period of time. Um, when normally she, ab- we would usually, t- we tell each other all those kinds of little details of our life, you know, especially during the pandemic, like there's nothing new that's happening in your life. And so you gotta, you gotta drum up like interesting news items that to inform your spouse about anyway, why am I telling this? 
My oh, point is, is that yeah. I, I try to tell people, and then I did in the moment. I said, oh, well, I, one, I would have made that mistake. Two, it's not your fault. Three, um, you know, I, I, I had this problem myself to the point where I actually had to tape this thing down. Anyway. Um, you going to ask her. What? Now you got to ask her. Ask her what? If I, if I do that too much? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think I did in the time. Oh, really? And then, and I, and she didn't affirm it. And I, and I was like, and it kind of, I guess was a good opportunity for me to tell her that I'm actually consciously dedicated to, um, particularly with her since we're married, that if one makes a mistake and I think I hope, I think I said, you're very careful because she is, my wife is one of the most, I mean, I think she's too careful. She's too scared of making a mistake of, you know, little things in life, you know, um, to the point where sometimes it annoys me, <laughs> you know, like she'll be like, don't do that. Cause that'll cause, you know, she's really safety oriented, yeah. mm. but often she's right. Like the other day, um, I, you know, I had a stuffy nose and I tried to, I was going to use a neti pot. Have you ever used neti pot? No, I know what they are. I just, it's, it's weird, right? Because you're, yeah. you're you're pouring uh, a pot full of water into your nose. But that just looks really uncomfortable. Yeah, and I'd never done it before, but I, I kind of felt like I wanted to try it. Great. And so I'm busting it out, and, and Stacy's like, oh, well, you know, she, she goes, oh, you know, don't use tap water because of brain-eating bacteria. Oh. And I'm like, Ugh. and I didn't say it, but in the moment I'm like, you probably read some scary, silly article about brain eating bacteria. And I'm like, come on, you know, like, is that a thing? And it was, so I, I was like, once again, she's overly paranoid or something. <laughs> and then I look in the instructions and it says, do not use tap water, use distilled water or boil the water before you use it. Because they didn't say exactly this, but because of bacteria that can, get into your brain and kill you. You know, it's essentially what they were saying. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. It said it literally in the instructions, like multiple times, uh-huh. you know, like do not use tap water, um, distilled water or boil your water. I love this story. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, and this happens frequently where I'm like, well, once again, uh-huh. her, what I perceive to be her paranoia mm-hmm. is absolutely accurate, mm-hmm. you know? And, I don't want brain eating bacteria. <laughs> but anyway, I did the neti pot and uh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Yeah. Essentially, the way you, the technique you do it, the the salt water goes in one nostril yeah. and it kind of fills your whole nasal area yeah. and then it dribbles out your other nostril. So yeah. you have to do it over the sink, you know? Oh, yeah, I should think. Um, and don't inhale. But you can breathe in your mouth. It, it seems like you wouldn't be able to breathe. Right, I'm, I'm thinking, but you can. There, it's, there's no problem. Like, oh, okay, you it's, would think like it would be kind of a struggle. You can close that part somehow. You can close that part of you. I don't know if the water ever gets there. Honestly, I'm not sure. Because a little bit of yeah. So you have to orient your head so that it doesn't. If you tip yourself back, you're maybe probably it got would. Problems. Maybe I don't know. It, I don't know. It was a lot easier and a lot less dra- dra- like waterboarding than I thought. Oh. You know, I, it, I thought it was gonna be kind of. <laughs> Like I would be waterboarding myself. But anyway, Bob, you dropped a tiny little spring that probably would have happened to him the next time he used it. Maybe. 
I'm quite sure of it. Yeah. I mean, because you're, you know, you're using it, and then yeah. the, the spring, it's a design flaw, one, that the spring could come off. Two, the next time he used it, the spring probably would have come off. Otherwise, he would have known about the spring, and he would have told you, watch out for the spring. He didn't know to say that, mm. so he wouldn't have, you know, it, it's it was a, a bad uh, design. And... And the fact that there's an easy remedy where you can just send a letter in and they'll send you a freaking spring like in a month. Who cares? Right. It's like it's just a stupid spring. It probably costs like 50 cents or 35 cents. Well, this is 1977. It costs a dime. Right. So let it go, Dad. Like, it's okay. You know, it's fine. Um, You're you're in the fourth grade he could have been there to watch too and maybe help you and like praise you and be like, Oh, I think the spring fell out. Let's look around for it. Um, it could have been a lesson of everyone makes mistakes. So yes, they do. It could have been a lesson of you made a mistake. It's okay. Nothing wrong with you. Here's how you remedy it. Yeah. Let's write the letter. Let's make it a fun time. You know, sure. Hey, the spring came. What a wonderful country we live. You know, there's so many other ways to do this, you know? Yeah. Um, other than to, almost pounce on an opportunity mm. to make your son feel like crap. Yeah. My father was impaired. Yeah. He's not a bad guy, but he was and impaired. I'm probably, it's probably true that even in fourth grade, you were extremely conscientious and thoughtful and smart. I'm just going to take a guess because you are. I, I, I can't think of a single thing that you do that's frivolous. Like, I don't... <laughs> you're... You're especially compared to me, like you were the most like um, conscientious, just thoughtful, careful. You don't take risks that are harmful to people around you or even yourself, you know, hmm. especially with money. My goodness. No, I don't. I don't really take risks with money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're wearing clothes that you probably bought like 35 years ago. Colleen bought me this, but it's it's a few years old. <laughs> but your car purchases, oh, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah, I, I just hope that this could be a little bit of a corrective experience for you around that whole event. Uh, it has the possibility if I take the risk, if I don't take the to risk. To let it in. Oh, you're talking about you and me? Yeah. And with Colleen. Now, those are two different events. They're both important because, you know, she's my partner, but you're my best friend. So if there's a possibility here of taking a risk with you, but it actually requires all the same bits, which is I have to tell you how scared I am. Yeah. And you have to. to t- even to tell me or to tell mm-hmm. Colleen? Yeah. You're scared to tell me. I can feel it right now. Uh, you're scared to tell me about your pen self-indulgence. It's one thing to say it to the room. It's another to say it to you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Patron only, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's scary for me, Kirk. Um, it's really scary for me to um, to risk um, your opinion of me. And... You know, the thing I, I've said this to you many times, the thing I love and appreciate about you is that, um, you don't, you're not saddled that way. I mean, not that you're not a conscious person. You are, 
ethical, all the good stuff, but you also have um, freedom and flexibility that I admire and um, do you think if I showed up here at your house with a $55 pen and say, I really like this pen, it cost me 55 bucks or whatever, would you think I were an asshole? No. I would react the way I reacted the first time, which is, holy crap, 55 bucks for a pen? Because <laughs> I didn't know, because that sounds like something Donald Trump would do. You know what I mean? It's like, there. but <laughs> I would have zero judgment of you as a human being. I'd just be like, whoa, you know? Um, but yeah, I would, <laughs> I wouldn't think you're an asshole. I would think, well, I'll tell you, okay. You know, I hope you believe me on this front that you can really let this in, you know, in terms of what's truly in my heart, you know, which is I, when I would go, whoa, uh, I wouldn't judge you for it. Um, I would, I, it would reorient my my idea of your preferences because you seem like such a I don't know basic person. It's not in a bad way. No, no, I get what that. <laughs> but means. this feels like a little extravagant. You know what I mean? And it, I would go, oh, I guess he 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 does have an extravagance for pens. You know, the, the one thing that he has has an extravagance for scotch and for pens. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and and I'd say, and that would be kind of an enjoyment for me to know a little bit more about you or to just it's just kind of fun to know those little anomalies in someone's personality mm. you know that someone would that someone mm -hmm. cares enough about that kind of thing instead of being bland and and always basic and, basic. and predictable i suppose um thanks and I would also probably think I'm glad that he's able to enjoy, you know, because it's fun to find something you and to get that tool you really want. You oh, know? yeah. Tools are awesome. Yeah. And I would be happy for you in that way. I'd probably wonder if I should up my pen game a little bit. I'd be like, because I've never gone into the $55 pen market. Should Should I be upping my into the next should i should i test it out and see if i want to go there well yeah you'd have to you'd be like show me the pen where's yeah. the pen you got it on you yeah um like damn that's a hell of a pen except it wasn't i wouldn't think you were self-indulgent i wouldn't think you were selfish i wouldn't think you were frivolous i wouldn't think you were ridiculous i would just be like 55 bucks for a pen you know to me, and the other thing is, you know, all the price. I remember old people when I was young, they'd be like, when I was a kid, when I went to the movies, it was it was one penny or whatever they yeah. would say. And I'd be like, geez, like, get over it. But I'm that way now. <laughs> like, when I go to McDonald's. Oh, wow. Which I did with Stacy the other day. She, really? she, likes, she, she likes a good breakfast oh, from McDonald's. I, they're so good. Yeah. Which, what did she get? She likes um, egg and cheese McMuffin. Oh, so good! You get a hash brown and a hash brown. Yeah. Oh, so good. Well, it's funny because we're, we're in the we're in the drive-through and we're like, we're like, what what do they call their that hash brown thing? Because you think it's got to be like Mc, yeah. McHash yeah, or a McBrown the, the, the or McTater or something. Yeah, but it's just called hash brown. Hash brown. <laughs> it's it's like the one thing on the menu that's just called what it is, right? <laughs> right. 
which is so funny because of course we've been ordering that hash browns for the for 50 years right you know because anyway yeah but uh oh so good so i was talking about how things are priced differently and and for me everything uh, when i go to mcdonald's i expect for two people it should be less than five bucks oh right or maybe less than seven yeah but it's so much more expensive than that what now. is it what did it cost i don't know but a, a lot more like, like 15 bucks uh golly i think it was like 25 i mean i because i got like i got like uh you know a couple things and then i always like to get a a coffee and a diet coke and maybe an orange i like my oh the orange juice at mcdonald's is so good right i like multiple um like beverages two fists in the morning yeah yeah and so anyway point is is that pens in my head are like literally 12 cents because they probably were in 1970 right. when I went to a store and I bought a big pen for, for 12 cents. Right on. And so 55 bucks to me is yeah. just like unheard of like that. Right. I, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. Yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, my point is, is that, uh, do you know that in my head, can you feel it that I wouldn't with that? And really maybe with anything would not judge you or think you're an asshole because you bought a $55 pen. Can you feel it? Do you believe me? Because that's the key. It is the key. Do you think I'm ridiculous? No. Not at all. You're not ridiculous anyway. Thanks. If you were, I'd tell you, you know. That's probably true. <laughs> I mean, that's why... I, I, the authentic reaction I have about like, holy crap, 55 bucks. That's real. Yeah. So you can I, believe, I believe me that, that I no, tell you, yeah. uh, you know, because that's the reaction I did have. Right. So I'm not sugarcoating it. I just, I go, whoa, yeah. but I would not think you're ridiculous. I would not think you're an asshole. Thanks. I believe you. Yeah. And, and I would not think how selfish of him, <laughs> how, how mean of him to like, just buy a pen that he wanted for so much money, you know, like I, yeah. I, there would be, that would, that wouldn't, there's right. not even a, an inkling of that in right. my head. Right. Yeah. Like you, you bought a guitar and be like, yeah, great. Right. Awesome. Right. Good for you. Like, yeah. It's like fun. Yeah. That kind of thing. Enjoy your life. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I didn't know you had this particular trauma. The pen trauma. Well, the, the spring trauma. The spring trauma. <laughs> the volcano. Funny that it's a volcano, right? It just uh, <laughs> In your memoir, that's got to be... <laughs> you know, the, the final scene is you getting a volcano and, and just throwing springs into a well or... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, John Irving was, it seems like that's a scene. That's a John Irving kind of thing. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, that is for that episode. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself and indulge yourself truly because you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs>